0: Welcome to the Fitness FAQs podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vadnell, Australian physiotherapist and calisthenics expert. Yad Mohammed is a medical doctor from the Netherlands. He has turned his passion into a profession, combining calisthenics and a science based approach. With over 11 years of calisthenics experience, it's safe to say that he has skin in the game and his knowledge runs deep. What calisthenics, skills, movements, exercises were you drawn to and still enjoy training today?
1: So I was uh, initially a dancer uh, and we did um, a dance battles at school. I was like 13. And this guy did a backflip, right, during a dance battle. I was very naive at that, at that time. I didn't know people could do that. I watched anime, I saw Dragon Ball Z, but I didn't, people were, I didn't know people could actually hold handstands, do handstand pushups, et cetera, do backflips. So once I saw him doing a backflip, I went online, YouTube, checked tutorials, and on the recommended, I saw uh, Geoff Craft be- performing 90-degree pushups. You probably know the video because you were there at the time. There wasn't much calisthenics videos out there. He was doing 90-degree pushups. Dude, I looked at my screen like, so ins- incredibly ins- inspired and confused, I didn't know this was a thing. So the moment I saw that, I told all my friends that I was going to be able to do that one day, um, and they laughed at me, of course, because I hadn't worked out a single day of my life. So I'm 14 years old now, never, never done a workout, may only you know the, the school stuff, and I was very skinny. I was like 45 kilos. I was already my height. I didn't grow much after that, um, but I saw that the 90 degrees push-up, I lost my mind, then I saw the planche, then I lost my mind even further, and those two movements caught me. I was like, I need to be able to do that. The 90 degrees push-up, I got like two, three years later, Later, and then the planche six years later, um, which was true, it was basically because I didn't know what I was doing. There, was, there weren't enough resources online, and I was just doing random stuff. Um, but And those are still two movements I love doing. They're so fun to do. They're so challenging. And um, I hope to keep on doing them until I die, <laughs> hopefully.
0: Your story there is really similar to most people that started really that 2010 era. I, I can speak for myself as well, seeing people doing these crazy feats of strength. And you're seeing that and you have kind of two options. You can be like, that'll never be me. I can't do that. Or you can see it as this massive inspiration. Someone's done it, which means chances are if you're committed, dedicated, you could potentially do it too. Which is why I really respect people that do something for the first time because they have to conceive something in their mind and actually manifest it when it hasn't even been presented to them previously. So I guess these days we've got a lot more motivation to draw from and just use that as self-belief, but extra respect to the people from now on doing stuff that hasn't even been done before because that's crazy.
1: Dude, you saying that I remember uh I think it was one and a half years ago, Manuel Caruso did um the Front Lever to Victorian. And I was also pursuing that movement and I know a few other people were too and I was just scrolling through my Instagram and I saw that. And i started crying i started crying not because i was jealous i started crying because someone showed me it was possible we weren't crazy and i was i was so proud of him i couldn't like i couldn't explain i was like am i what the hell am i doing why am i crying right now but i was so inspired so proud of this person so much respect that i couldn't emotionally show it so i had to cry It was just one of the coolest moments and just knowing because I know how much work that requires I've been going for that movement as long as he probably did and he did it dude So you saying the the respect for the for the people doing something for the first time like hundred percent with you That's wow. That's really crazy. They're going For something fully knowing it might not be possible and it's yet to keep doing it. That's crazy
0: now What's your advice for people that see all this stuff that they're motivated, but they've got absolutely no idea where to start, especially with calisthenics stuff. There's so much progression that's required to actually get to these feats of strength. Is there anything that you'd say to beginners, which is like the most important stuff that they should focus on to put them in a position to do the crazy stuff they want?
1: Yeah, I think it's important to have enough muscle. So get big enough. So uh, just doing basic hypertrophy training. It doesn't even need to be calisthenics. Just build some muscle. It's going to help you a lot. Um, so that's the first thing. And and a lot of people know how to do that. That's not like a hidden knowledge. That's something we've known for many years. So you can just find that out online, get some big muscles. And then uh, the second thing is knowing and realizing that um, uh, calisthenics has a very interesting aspect, which is the skill work, which is just technique training, how much of a value that is. And that that comes later. Once you can not build muscle and do that at the same time, at least not in the beginning, because you're so fatigued, so it's okay. Just enjoy this process of getting big. And you don't need to become huge, just big enough, so some muscle. Um, and then afterwards, start working on all these movements. Watch specific videos per video, because every move, movement is in calisthenics, pretty much every movement is very technical. So take your time, Um, maybe pick one push movement one pull movement and just focus on that movement analyze it watch everything you can because that will help you you're your best own coach and uh, a third thing record yourself record everything it will improve your proprioception by a lot your brain actually i I don't know about you it's probably the same for you again because you're 10 -er. pluser when i work out I can almost see myself in third person because of because of the amount of times I've recorded myself. I am just fully aware of every single detail. I know where my feet is. I know where my hips are. I know that I'm doing PPT or APT. I know that my shoulders are good. I don't even need to look at the footage anymore, yet I still record because it's, it's a good habit that I built throughout throughout all these years. I record almost every set and I can just see myself in third person. It's crazy. And I'm pretty sure you can do the same. What, can you do the same? Are, are you also just, i kind of curious you now.
0: Do, you do get that awareness of where your body right. is in space. But I also think that as a double confirmation of that, it is good to record yourself because the more fatigued you are, the harder of an exercise you're doing, etc. it's often more difficult to get an accurate judge of what you're doing. For example, if you're doing an isometric hold and you make the rookie sin of just counting instead of using some type of time right. or something, uh, a A quote unquote 12 second hold could be like seven seconds and it might seem insignificant but it's just keeping yourself to good standards by filming yourself is good for qualitative assessment but then also just um, yeah other objective things you can do like I said with just measuring hold times properly. You've been doing this for over 10 years. How are you still so passionate about it after all this time?
1: That is a great question. Uh, an existential question for me. Cause I, I, once I passed the 10 year, I had to ask myself that because I was like, yo, um, I'm kind of crazy because if you think about it, I'm an adult man spending hours and hours, not, not even hours. I'm spending years on doing movements on going up and down repeatedly on holding positions, statically on lifting weights and then putting them down just so that I can hold a cooler position eventually. And that's it. That's all I'm doing. I've I've gotten past the point there where it's healthier for my body. It's actually not much healthier now. If anything, I'm kind of ruining my joints every now and then. Um, so there's not. So it's really weird if you think about it. I'm just doing movements and I sacrifice so much for it. I spend so much time of my life doing it. And I'm sure it's the same for you. So at some point I'd ask myself like, why the hell am I doing this? And I got a bit existential. I was like, yo, I'm crazy. I think that's the only conclusion. And then I came to a few answers, and this, I could speak about this for hours and hours, but just to give a few points that I think is important for me, the first one being um, that I'm focused when I do calisthenics. It's one of the very little times in my life that I'm completely like, absorbed by, a, by an activity. And I don't think people realize how important it, how important that is. There were a few studies done on how often we're distracted. And this, there was a study done before smartphones even existed. And it showed that 58% of the time, we humans are distracted. So more than half our waking time, we're distracted. And this was before we had smartphones, right? And then a few other studies were done on how, what kind of impact that has, that has on our general uh, well-being. our our mental health, our happiness. And it showed a direct correlation between how happy we are by how much we are distracted, concluding that we are literally distraction is literally toxic for the brain. Right. Um, People doing boring tasks, but they're focused on it are so much happier. And if you go to I don't know if you've been to different countries where you see people live a simpler life. I say simpler like this because it's not really a simpler life, but more focused life where they just do their daily tasks, they're baking bread or they're doing farming. They're so much happier. There's such a low level of depression in uh, uh, places like that. And that's simply because they're focused. So for me, that's one of the key things. Calisthenics keeps me focused, which is huge. Um, And then there's the second reason. It's the most challenging thing I've done in my life. I've studied to become a medical doctor, but that's nothing compared to calisthenics. You know, Being a doctor just requires many, 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 many hours. Kassetix does the same, but you can't force it. You cannot force it. You can want a movement, but if you force it, you're going to get injured. It's, It's not one of those things you can just nuke and you get it. You have to plan it. You have to eat. You have to plan your entire life around it to be able to do it. And It was one of the first things in my life that I just couldn't get it like that. I had to really give everything up to be able to do it, and that just absorbed me man that was just like i couldn't handle it i really wanted to master it and till today 12 years later i still don't feel like i've mastered it i still need to keep going Um, and that's why i've been doing it for for this long two reasons of many other reasons
0: that's a fantastic perspective because that whole mindfulness i guess mainstream thinks of meditation as something you have to sit in an empty room and just be with your thoughts and to most people that haven't tried that or don't want to do that, it just seems insanely boring. Whereas you take something like exercise or calisthenics specifically, you're there, you're doing these movements, you're, you're concentrating on what you're doing at the time, but in between, you've got a lot of rest periods, you're thinking about your technique, and then all of a sudden you'll have some other thoughts about, oh, this is going on in my life. It just gives you a chance to practice that with within calisthenics and i haven't really heard someone bring it up like that before but that's that's really interesting
1: and and it's interesting you mentioned that the, the part that where you think about other things but then you get reminded to think back about the training, which is a very uh, common thing in mindfulness, to be aware of your distractions and then bring it back. I was doing this from 14 to 26 without realizing that I was doing this. So obviously I, w- I was going to get addicted to this because it's a very healthy thing for the brain. So I-, I didn't even realize that until you said that, but that's another like layer of how you're actually doing mindfulness. You're right. It's actually pure mindfulness, but at like a cooler way of doing it in my opinion.
0: Is there anything different that you do for strength skills in calisthenics? Because as you said, it's a skill, so it requires a lot of balance, technique, and stuff like that. Is there anything we should do in terms of our intensity to account for that?
1: So the problem with calisthenics compared to other strength sports like uh, uh, Olympic lifting and um, powerlifting is that um, there's a bigger bottleneck. And when I say bottleneck, I mean the integrity of our connective tissue tends to meet the max capacity faster than any other tissue. So for example, let's take a planche. When you're holding a planche, often people start getting pain around the elbows because the connective tissue around there just cannot, uh, cannot accept the amount of volume you're doing for it. Whereas the muscles around it, they're not even breaking a sweat right? So being aware of that is very important. And then also realizing how much value that has. So what I do is when I do hypertrophy kind of training, I try to minimize the amount of uh, stress I put on onto these joints, these valuable joints, because for me, I see it like money, right? I can only spend this much money on my elbows and I can spend so much money on my chest and, and delts, etc. So uh, there was the longest time I was doing planche pushups, but I would not lock out. I would spend that time just for hypertrophy. I'm like, okay, I'm just doing hypertrophy. I'm not locking out because I need these elbows for my planche holds later. Because there's only set amount of holds I can do per week. You want to be able to do as much holds as possible, but not get injured. That's the most important thing in calisthenics. You want to be able to max the amount of holds, but not get injured. Because you're going to get injured. So... I try to think really smart about, okay, so I know my elbows give up really fast, so I'm just going to make sure I don't really put much stress on them unless I need to. And the only times I need to is when I do specific work, which is skill work. Um, I think that's the most important thing. And in the beginning, you're not going, going to be able to do much because of that. You're going to have a very low capacity of doing skill work, which is fine. But once you get better, and this takes years, okay? This is not something that happens in months because connective tissue integrity can take six to 12 weeks until it actually adapts to, to a new stressor in your body. That's a long, long time. Whereas muscles can take a few weeks and then you're, you're in. You're, you can move to the next weight. Not with connective tissue. So be aware of that. It takes years and years and years. And then you can maybe become someone crazy like Viktor Kaminov who does 40 full planches in one session. I'm not there but there's people apparently who have built such a resilient body that they're able to do that. And that's why they're the best because they are able to spam these full planches, spend time doing specific work at such a high volume that they're going to become better. It's just fact. So the most challenging thing about calisthenics when it comes to skill work is uh, improving that integrity, connective tissue integrity, and removing the bottlenecks so that you can do more. And it's, it's a hard road to to go on because you can get injured so easily. So yeah, that. What do you
0: think about the mainstream recommendation? This is what I was taught growing up with calisthenics, a 10 plus year veteran like yourself, was you need to spend a disproportionate amount of time on easier progressions, even if you're capable of holding a more advanced one by nature of this tendon healing
1: yeah. So I think um, I, especially in the, first, in, in the last years, I started appreciating these, the harder, well, the harder uh, progressions that you're just barely able to do more than uh, doing the easier progressions. And the re- reason why I say is, is because um, specific work is required to do the movement you want to do. So when you're full planching, the angles are completely different than when you're tuck blanching. You want to get as close as possible to the angles that you're doing when you're doing skill work. So the most ideal situation would be to do a lighter version of your body uh, and then do a full planche, resistant resistance bands get pretty close to that around the waist, Perfect. not around the feet because it messes up the, the whole balance. Uh, but even that's not the best. Uh, if there was even a better construction where it would pull very, very, like, like The entire body would pull just the amount, of the same amount. That would be awesome. Um, yeah. But you want to get as close to the angle as possible. So doing a harder progression that you're barely able to do is obviously going to be more specific because it's closer to that angle. So if you can hold the advanced stuck for like 10 seconds and just, you, you don't want to do the straddle because you're still working on the advanced stuck, I would say start your session with a few straddle planches. You're not going to ruin your elbows. It's not that much more stress. It's actually volume. The amount of holds that will probably break your elbows versus just one or two high intensity holds. Um, it's not that much high intense. It's 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 okay. It's not that bad. So do like one or two uh, holds. Try to really maybe go to failure. Actually, uh, like there's no reason not to do that because your muscles won't even feel that. Uh, and then after that, go back to your simpler progression. Try to do some progressive overload in that. And hopefully, you'll eventually, you'll see the straddle planche get to the point where your event stuck is, and then you can do the same for full planch and straddle.
0: Is there any specificity in regard to tendon growth and resilience? What I mean by that is, say, if you're trying to improve the connective tissue of your elbows for planche, is it better to do your hypertrophy work specifically in the planche movement to get a similar stress? Or is it more non specific where you can just strengthen that tendon by other straight arm, bent arm exercises?
1: Yeah, so th- th- that's a difficult question in a sense of uh, w- there's a part of me that says don't do anything specific in uh, hypertrophy training because you want to spend that time only doing hypertrophy training and then use the amount of capacity you have on skill work. But then again, if you're so fatigued from your hypertrophy training that you're not able to express your uh, fitness in the skill works, I'm saying you're not recovered enough to be to even be able to do quality planche sets. Then it is a good idea to do some conditioning in uh, the 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 uh, hypertrophy training. But a better thing would be the second thing you mentioned: is do your hypertrophy training. I'm assuming you're now too broken to actually do planche stuff. So start doing planche Maltese uh, straight dumbbell uh, raises. So that's what with the straight arms and you bring them to your, to your. Um, you're mimicking basically a full planche to Maltese and you go back up again. And you try to keep your arms locked, um, but it's very important to micro load this movement because like I said, six to 12 weeks until you adapt to a certain stressor, if you start going up every week, you're going to tear off your biceps. It's just going yeah. to happen. There's no way around it. Uh, so, yeah, this is something that you have to think every six weeks I'm going to add one kilo. And you do that for years and years and years. And then you might get to 20 kilos, etc. which is crazy. That's a high amount of weight. Don't, it might not sound like much. That's crazy. 20 kilos. I, I, I've seen Yuri Fungel do that, but he's like there. He's there. His yeah, connective yeah, tissue yeah. Uh, integrity is way there. And he's only doing like 20, 24, I think. So it's like that's crazy. You don't, you don't need to go much higher than that.
0: This has been a theme that you've mentioned a few times so far, Yard, which is um, time. It's clear to me that things take a long time to achieve and progress with. Can you just highlight just some timeframes that are realistic expectations for progress? Like what should people be aiming for with strength skills?
1: Yeah. So for uh, lever-based movements like front lever, uh, flag, planche, back lever, um height sp- uh, plays a, an important role height can make the difference of uh, a few months versus a few years uh, versus even decennia depending on how, how tall you are um so i think it's important to scale your expectations based on how high you, how, how your height i have a friend who's two meter three he's going to take it's going to take a huge amount of time it's, it's we don't even know if it's possible for him to ever full planche but we're going to try we're going to see how far he gets. But that can take up to 10 years, 20 years. That's something that's that's going to be a life life thing. Then we've got Olaf. You know him. He's 1 meter 88. He's been training for nine years. And he's got like a few a few small full planch holds. Which is, again, very realistic for his height. But he's also very heavy. Um, and then for short people like me, even for short people like me, I'm 167. So there are even shorter people than me out there. Um, but... Uh, it's, it's, you're probably going to get uh, holds faster, but even people like me, I've seen people as tall as me train for many years and not be able to hold a front lever uh, or, or a planche uh, because of, our, of the way we're built. We're just built differently. I have different proportions. I have uh, different insertions. Um, so it's, when it comes to lever-based movements, it's really hard to pinpoint a time, but it's important to realize For some, it can take a few months and that might suck to know that for some, it might take literally 10 plus years and it's your own journey. And it's also important by knowing that you also realize the impressiveness really is person based. If I see a two meter guy do a full planche, I'm going to be much more impressed by someone doing a full front lever world record. Like, I, uh, I'm going to be more impressed by the full planche than the full front lever, because that, my guy, is a world record. That is crazy. Um, so knowing that and scaling your expectation based on that, I think is important. And then you've got other movements, which are more vertical movements, hands and push-ups, you've got your pull-ups, you've got your one-on pull-ups. Uh, obviously, weights and height still plays a huge role, but a lot less, a lot less. Um, there's the square, square cube law, uh, where... Uh, surface area, uh, the, the, the volume grows exponentially to the surface area, meaning so a muscles, the, the, the strength of a muscle is determined by the greatest cross sectional muscle area. So when you grab a muscle and you cut it in half at the thickest part, that surface area determines how strong a muscle is, how much force it can exert alongside many other factors. But that's an important thing. But the volume, uh, of the muscle grows exponentially. So meaning the amount of weight you gain per amount of surface area grows exponentially. So uh, you get bigger, so you get stronger, but you get bigger more than you get stronger. So, and that's an important to remember, shorter people will always have more relative strength, will always be better calisthenics. That's just a fact, it sucks. Yet we see often that people, they're pretty tall, pretty, pretty uh, they weigh it a lot they're able to do some impressive uh, movements when it comes to these vertical movements. And I think you can also skill you can maybe jump into that um, knowing that you can become better at those. I've seen tall people, do 20 hands and ups um, That it's just so much more realistic to get higher, uh, get a faster progression on those movements is what I'm trying to say. So separate the movements, leverage base can take freaking long time depending on how tall you are and then the vertical movements can take a lot less time and is a lot less influenced by uh, your height and weight
0: i agree with what you said and for that reason i often recommend people progressing their basics first their bent arm pushing bent arm pulling because then that comes to building a foundation of muscle mass of basic strength in those upper body muscles and then afterwards because you've seen more rapid progress, and you're seeing some success with it, you're probably going to stick with calisthenics, whereas you try and go onto those lever-based movements. And if you're tall, you're heavy, as you said with the square cube law, it can be a really frustrating endeavor. And we all know that if we didn't see any success or growth with what we're doing, we'd be unlikely to, to stick to it. We need to see that reward. How has your training changed over the last few years?
1: Great question, uh, it has changed a lot. Uh, so like I mentioned in the beginning, I was just doing something. I was just randomly spamming movements. Uh, back then you only had gymnastic bodies. It was the only really good resource out there, which isn't even the best because they were really focused on doing like one minute tuck plunge, then advanced tuck. I was like, holy crap, <laughs> that was crazy. Um, so back in the old days, I was just spamming uh, holes. Uh, for like the first four years i was just doing random holes and i'm super gifted when it comes to pulling movements so i i i got a good front lever from that etc i only got a shroud planche and i say only because again i'm a pretty short guy and i had a 25 second front lever back then and i could barely hold a shreddle planche like this doesn't make sense to me so and then uh, i think around the fourth year i started going to the gym i was finally in medical school and um Yeah. Yeah. That fits. Yeah. So four years in medical school, I started doing hypertrophy training. I started doing crazy amount of volume. I finally started adding mass to my muscles. It was becoming bigger. I was noticing some insane lifts. I was doing crazy stuff. And then I started going, uh, I I was so fatigued at all time. I didn't actually notice myself becoming better at calisthenics until I finally took a few weeks of deload, uh, so after like a few years, I finally took a deload and then uh, I was able to express my strength. I was doing a full planche at the sixth year. I started crying. I was like, Jesus, I finally did it. Six years of training, full planche. I, I could probably do it earlier, but I was just so fatigued constantly. But um, I wasn't aware of that concept. I was just not that level yet. And then... After the sixth year, I started uh, doing a more smarter approach. I started doing periodization where I would be doing mass cycle, then strength cycle, and then even a skill cycle where I specifically train skills. I did that for like two more years. It uh, worked pretty well. But, and now in the last two years, I'm experimenting with something different. Um, um, the last four years, before these last two years, I was focused more on science-based training. And now I'm trying to kind of combine that with the experience that I've built as an athlete. There are certain things I do as an athlete that I cannot explain why it works, but I have a gut feeling it works. And I'm trying to kind of go with the gut feeling now the last two years to see if I'm right. Because chances are I am right. Uh, You see a lot of really good athletes just doing what they think it's the best and they actually succeed. And we cannot explain why they're good until a few years later where we finally do research on what they're doing and we're like, oh shit, that makes sense. So that's why Usain Bolt is Usain doing what he does and it makes sense. And I think there's a few practices that I have and I see a lot of other 10 plusers or people who are really strong do the same without it being actually expressed anywhere. And I'm when I see that, I'm like, yo, I should do that again. I should kind of let go of the science yard, try these things, and then later find out a reason why it works and try to actually find the theory behind it and then bring it all together. So these past two years have been a big experiment and I've noticed huge, huge gains. Um, 2022 sucked though, cause I got two injuries that I had no control over uh and uh, i've been more rehabbing than improving yet despite all that i am at my peak pulling strength which for me is a huge thing um because again i have 12 years of training in the background being at a prime is already a huge feat to do at this long of a training period uh so i'm i'm i think there's something there i think i'm doing something good not sure Uh, we'll find out soon
0: (laughs) that is what i often say in Fields even beyond calisthenics, you see elite performers in everything that are doing something a little bit different, but similar to other elite performers, but it's not mainstream stuff. And we see a ton of that with, say, Italian street workout, French street workout. They're doing all these like niche exercises with pauses, uh, using bands for certain movements, uh, focusing on a certain part of a pull for a muscle up. This type of stuff is just not really in the mainstream calisthenics knowledge. But I like that you're blending, I'm not afraid to blend a bit of the, I guess, bro lifting with the, the evidence-based right. stuff. And I think that's key. I, I just feel that, as you said, the information is often delayed and especially with what we're doing with calisthenics, it's hard to extrapolate the research to what we do. There's just not much on, on isometrics and stuff. There's not much funding on it. So... We have to be guinea pigs and it's nice to say that you're putting your time to good use. Now, given how much we can do within the world of calisthenics, how do people go about goal setting and finding things that gets them fired up, gets them passionate long-term?
1: I, at this moment now, the way I keep myself fired up is <clears throat> every week I try to do better than last week. It's very simple. It's like, <clears throat> it's just progressive overload, but then on a weekly basis and it can be as simple as, let's say I'm doing like 100 kilo bench press and I get like eight reps in, right? And uh, the next week I get, uh, I try to match that or do it better. I always try to do it better. And doing better can be very small. It can be literally also doing eight reps, but it feels slightly easier. Like the RPE is slightly lower, the rate of perceived exertion. Or it can be something big, like, yo, I just added two reps to that. But both of them are just as exciting for me, because both of them are progress. And because I've been training for this long, I know that even a little bit of progress can really accumulate to a massive amount of progress. And just being aware of that, like one year isn't much of our time. It really isn't. It's nothing compared to the grand scheme of things. If you do that for an entire year, you keep Doing that, you're going to see a massive amount of work, of, of, of progress uh, throughout every domain, and that that's what keeps me motivated personally. I look at the big goals, but that doesn't really motivate me. What really makes me wake up excited for the workout makes me like look in the mirror, fired up, scream in the car when I go to the car, to the workout, and I'm like, yeah, today's the day. Is knowing that I'm going to. Get a few PRs. There's going to be a few PRs. As little as they may be, they're PRs. And I'm happy with that.
0: Interesting. It's that real process-driven goal-setting approach where it's a lot more tangible on a day-to-day. Like you're you're living in it more so. So your sustained fulfillment from that process is going to be much more than some grand outcome goal, which you still need to set. You've got to have direction with, with where you're going. Say it's a planche. But if you're going for that full planche and that's your only thing that's in your mind, you're going to have a hard time because you're going to achieve it possibly in a few years, maybe not never, whereas if you were to think about, as you said, I'm going there, I'm going to get three more seconds today on this set. I did it, fantastic. I got one more second. Not as good as I could have, but I still tried. I improved. That's a win. It's not like you go there. Any improvement, man. I'll no take full it planche today. I'm just going to go back home. That's, that's yeah. Defle- defeated,
1: yeah. No, 100%. That's why it's nice to have a bunch of exercises and just getting like a PR on one exercise. It may be just the bicycle you do at the end. You're like, yeah, I've got a whole new rep in. Let's go. That's progress. You're progressing. Today was a progressing day. And when I'm not progressing, and I do that a few times in a row, I know, okay, it's time to deload. We're just another way of progressing. Yo, now I get to finally rest, let my body recover from the fatigue. And then the day, the week after, we're gonna start this all over again. We're gonna feel better. We're gonna feel more motivated. We're gonna do more. So it's always some sort of progress. There's always progress. That's the most important thing.
0: Today's sponsor for the show is Fitness FAQs. Use the coupon code podcast10 to save 10% at checkout when shopping on fitnessfaqs.com. Enjoy the discount and let's get back to the conversation. What is the recommended split that you recommend for most people that works most of the time?
1: So uh, when it comes to upper body calisthenics, um, I split them in uh, four things. I split them in horizontal push, vertical push, horizontal pull, vertical pull. That's how I split those movements. And I try to um then create a split for for these. So you can do like a full body split where you do like uh all of them on one day. So three times a week you just do all of them or you can be doing a, a possibly better approach is with which is like okay, on this day I'm going to superset the horizontal push with the vertical uh with the vertical pull. And then the day after I'm going to be doing or the day after I'm going to rest do some skill work and then do the third day I'm going to work on the other ones. And You just keep on doing that. Um, But in my experience, what I'm doing now is the full body one, which uh, um, I do with different rep ranges and I just do all four of them. And this is what I keep saying. It's like on paper, it makes sense to do the other approach, but in practice for me, this works better. I cannot explain it, but just to go back, it's important. There's a lot of different ways of doing the split. And it probably doesn't matter as much uh, as we thought it would be. It probably doesn't matter as much, but it is important to at least organize your training in such a way that you're aware there's a there's a vertical push, there's a vertical pull, there's a horizontal push and there's a horizontal pull. It's important to be aware of that, at least for the upper body. And then for the lower body, there's like the hamstring based movements and there's the quad based movements, which is like deadlift versus squat movements. and just being aware of that and then splitting it in a at least sensible way. So you're not doing horizontal push, horizontal push, horizontal push, and then doing the other stuff. So at least some sense in there, you're probably going to be progressing. And it's only gonna matter like one, 2% um, to get the perfect amount, like the perfect uh, 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 split. It's only gonna matter one, 2%, which is only late for the super competitive athletes. That's not for the average Joe. so don't worry as much. The split doesn't matter as much as you think. Just be aware of what movements you need to be able to hit in a week at least.
0: Yeah, that's so important as well as the sustainability and also enjoyment. You read something that's optimal. It's the best. It's the bee's knees of calisthenics. It gives you the best results. You stick to it for two weeks. You can't keep up with it because you got busy studying or you got work or something like that. That's not going to. That's not going to give you the progress because. As we've been talking about in this podcast, it's about stringing together months, years. So you need to find the split that you enjoy, that you can stick to, and is comprehensive for your goals. That's why it's, it's difficult. We'd love to be here and just say, this split, do this one. It's magic. Everyone's going to have a great time, but it's not the case. So having that autonomy and just decision-making with your own training is key.
1: Yeah, and, and the reason why I like the full body split is because of the PR reason I just mentioned. If I'm not gonna PR in a pull up, I might PR in a push up. You know? As simple as that. I get some PR. And depending on what I get at the gym, I already feel like, yo, my lats are really recovered today. It's gonna be it's gonna be pull up PR, it's gonna happen. And then I know the push up probably one PR because I'm working so I'm so focused on the pull up, but yo, I got one PR in there. And I keep doing that every day. I always, always, I always start my workout with a muscle up and a few hands and push ups as a warm up, just so that. And I didn't know I was doing this subconsciously, just to know, yo, this is where I'm at. This is how recovered I am, because explosiveness is the first thing that gives away when you're fatigued. Then the rest follows. Uh, the studies done on that speed is the first thing that drops. So there's actually, a, like, if we were to. Hyper focus on that. We could you could actually record yourself probably in slow motion and then see how fast you do the muscle up, and then you could say, "Yo, I'm fatigued." You could do that, but most people are just able to feel it. And um, based on that, I can already know like this is a PR day. Just based on one muscle up, I'm like PR day. I can just I can just say I can just tell, and just knowing that also gets you to PR harder than ever.
0: Yes, yes, that's great advice there, yeah I don't think that's mentioned enough about using power as a proxy for how hard, I guess, you can approach the session. So just say that someone's not feeling powerful, they're towards the end of a training cycle. Is there, would you auto-regulate? Would you push through and try and crush yourself? What do you do?
1: I would auto-regulate, yeah. I would uh, auto-regulate based on your power and based on how much uh, DOMS you have. Uh, daily onset um, muscle soreness. So so the soreness you have afterwards. And I would take all that together with all the years of experience. You probably know how far you are in your fatigue. And then just say, you know what? I should stop. I'm going to get injured. I'm just going to stop. Um, I'm going to take a week off. And after that week, I'm going to get really frustrated that I didn't work out for a week. So I'm going to have all that motivation to start again on the Monday and then start this all over again. I think, yeah, I think that's, that's, and that's a skill that you really have to learn to be able to know where you're at. And you need to become injured a few times to get it at that level. That's just fact. You need to learn to fall before you know what it means, uh, what falling is. Um, yeah, that.
0: Because at the end of the day, we all want to make gains, want to become the strongest we can, the best version of ourselves. And through that, I think most people are passionate about doing this stuff. But often that can be to their own detriment. I know I can speak for myself. Um, you realize that you've dug yourself a fatigue hole if you're not making any progress, and the answer isn't just to keep doing more. It's as you said, having that awareness and the importance of recovery, the importance of restraint is just tremendous. Which is what I wanted to ask you, Yard. Which is what are the most important things for recovery that people can do that. Biggest, bang for your buck, cheapest, no gimmicks. What should people focus on to recover best?
1: Um, So if you really want to dive into the very specifics of this, James Hoffman and Dr. Mike Isertel, they both wrote wrote a book called uh, Fatigue Management. Um, And what they basically say is the most important things is one, sleep. You want to get at least seven till nine hours, at least Uh, consistently every day so not like don't throw a three hour in there because that's going to ruin you Um, you want to get enough nutrition so if that means getting enough protein which often for a strength athlete means at least 1.6 grams per kilogram maybe even 2.2 if you can and um, get a caloric maintenance or surplus obviously if you're cutting that's not going to be an option but so also be aware if you're cutting you're going to get fatigued much faster just be aware of that that's already enough uh, so, so we got sleep, we got nutrition, and then we've got, of course, a workout that makes sense in the sense of that you're not getting over fatigued. Those three things are key. All the other stuff that I'm about to mention only accounts for like maybe five percent. That is the ninety-five percent. That's your bang for the buck. That is what for everyone who's not a super hyper competitive athlete should take care of everything else. Um, and then the, the 5%, is literally just 5% and you're putting on 100% to get the 5%. So you're putting on so much work just to get a little bit. Whereas the other stuff is much easier. It's just, it requires a lot of compliance, a lot of uh, planning, a lot of uh, motivation to do so. So the other stuff is like the basics, like you've got the ice bath, which important to mention We're doing when you're doing an ice bath, it's not a smart thing for in a math cycle. It is a smart thing in a skill cycle. The reason why I mention this is studies show that when you have a lot less inflammation, so let's say you take NSAIDs like ibuprofen, etc., or or you, you do an ice bath, you have less muscle adaptation, meaning your muscles don't get the stimulus to grow. So you're literally making less gains. Now, this matters less when you're doing skill work. Because when you're doing skill work, you're not actually going for the muscle size. You're actually trying to improve the neural adaptation part of it, which is like the neuroplasticity, the coordination of all your muscles working together, the motor unit recruitment, all these things, and a lot more we don't actually know about yet as, sci- as scientists. All these things, they can be improved um, without the muscles becoming bigger. So you could argue that ice baths could be a good thing to do when doing... Uh, skill cycles, but they're not a good thing to do when you're doing strength, uh, mass cycles. So ice bath is a thing, um, and anything that reduces stress, meaning saunas, going to the spa, chilling with your family, uh, having a chill ass day, just being super calm, mindfulness. These things, huge, huge. Not for the reasons you think, because a lot of people think, oh, you go to sauna, you get a lot of blood flow through your muscles. That's not the reason why you're recovering as much it's because you're so damn chill. <laughs> you're just relaxing. And people underestimate how big of a deal. I would probably say that's the 3% and then the other stuff is the 2%. Uh, I, would, I, I don't have, like obviously, data to say that, but like, just my gut feeling is it's, that's how important it is. Just to state to people, that's the, the, uh, the uh, perspective you should be having on these things. I think that's bang for the buck. and all the other stuff doesn't really matter as much. There's no such thing as active recovery. You're not actively recovering when doing a high volume uh, pull-up day or something. You're not recovering. You're still that lat still crying. Like when doing 30 pull-ups, because you're like, oh, because I get the blood flowing. No, you get the blood flowing, but that muscle is still getting like, you're still getting some micro tears in there. Yeah,
0: it's that pseudo fatigue. Just people just stay out of the park, stay out of the gym, stay out of your location at home where you've got your setup. All of this stuff is what separates the pros from people that don't achieve their potential. It's as you said, they've just got much better compliance at eating well, sleeping fully, managing their fatigue with training, being sensible. They stick to that for a long period of time. That's what separates people. And the funny thing is like that could be a sound training advice to take people all the way but we we like geeking out we like talking about the minutiae and stuff but it really is worth stressing that that is where the best use of your time is
1: that's true it's even stressing to realize yo i didn't take my sauna today Fuck. and you stress on that <laughs> the whole point of the sauna is to chill you down yeah, so it's it's, yeah. it's it's important it's it's so important to realize that um, all these extra things you're doing accounts for so little. And then the fundamental things that will help you in every aspect of your life, sleep, nutrition, and just having a good workout plan. This not only helps you to recover as much, but it generally makes you better at every other aspect in life. Just I need people to value it more. Having a consistent less amount of sleep, like six, five hours, something every week, every day for years is worse than smoking. Like, honestly, I would go out of my way to say that because people really underestimate how insanely important sleep is. It is literally a chronic disease if you don't do it.
0: Yeah, once people read some articles or listen to some podcasts by, say, Matt Walker, it'll open your eyes just to how powerful that is. I mean, if you're going through a period of a lack of sleep, it's worth modifying your training. I know for myself, when I had... Stressful practice of time where I couldn't stick to my usual split of, say, like five days a week, I'd drop a workout because I know that that lack of sleep for those few days is just going to be at my own detriment. And that maturity has to come over time if you want to make great progress.
1: 100%. 100%. With you.
0: Now, when it comes to getting strong at skills, there tends to be two camps. There's the people that want to just practice the skills highly specific but then you also get people who say, it's important to do some assistance work, work on the weak links, and do some type of additional movements. What's your take on this topic?
1: Like I said before, the first camp, awesome if you can. Awesome if you can do enough work that your connective tissue is not the bottleneck. Chances are high that your connective tissue is going to forever be your bottleneck. Um, I haven't, like, I think there are people who can, who don't have that but I haven't confirmed it yet. Um, but so yeah, so the first camp in theory, if you could, awesome, do that. But chances are you can't. So you need to go to the second camp. You need to do exercises, at least if you wanna train optimally, where you try to account for these bottlenecks. So you still give enough stimulus to the muscles so that they can become stronger um, and uh, keep progressing in disregarding like the connective tissue so a great exercise would be for example if you take planche right Uh, a full planche uh, you could be doing any horizontal push movement to improve that so you can be thinking specific like maybe near lockout planche push-ups great idea or you could be less specific bench pressing still focusing on the muscles required for planche albeit a bit different but you're still working on getting those muscles stronger and and You just have so much more capacity to do those. You can do so much more volume. Important though is, is to remember its assistant, meaning when you do too much, you can't let it to fatigue you so much that your quality of planche training goes down the well, um, unless you're doing the mass cycle. So it's always important to at least realize that when you're doing all these other work, all these other things that it has impact on your planche. And that if you're not able to do enough qualitative planche work, your planche is going to get less good. It's just going to uh, you know, uh, deteriorate. So be aware of that and plan assistance exercises where needed, where, where, it, where it makes sense, where it depends on where you are in your training years. It depends where, what cycle you're in, like all these factors play a huge role. But I think the key, is, the key is camp one, if possible, awesome. But you can't, so you have to do what camp two does a little bit.
0: Yeah, and just shifting the mindset to just patiently progressing and not trying to overload as much as you do on your main movement. Put all your full effort into progressing that key strength skill that you're working on and the assistance work. You've got to be fine with just using a reasonable RPA, something that you can... Tolerate so it doesn't, like you said, detract too much from the main goal at hand.
1: 100%. Yeah.
0: What's your recommended strategy for people who struggle with sticking to a program, swapping exercises? I feel that this is one of the biggest downfalls in calisthenics that I see all the time.
1: Really? Uh, okay. Um, for me, it's always been simple because I know how the body works. I know it takes so much time to see results. And I think people after listening to this podcast will realize um, that being aware of the amount of time required to see any progress is the reason why you should be on something for that long. And like there is no one fit Program for everyone. Chances are the program might actually not work for you, and that's fine. But the only reason to find out is to do at least I would say three months of it. At least three months of it, and then you can maybe make a good judgment. Even then, three months is pretty short. Let's be real; it's it's kind of short. But if you're if you're that guy that really for some reason has to speed through uh, do a speed uh, speed walk through uh, speed run through calisthenics, then let's say three months. And just being aware. That connective tissue for example takes 6 to 12 weeks to adapt properly to a new stressor that muscles take many weeks like one to two weeks to actually uh, recover and that neural adaptation can take years and years and years even just being aware of that should probably motivate you enough to stick with a program because chances are if you give up so fast on that that's waste of time that you spend all the way until you've tried it and if you keep doing that you're wasting weeks weeks months months and maybe even years so it's better to actually try a program that you might even be very skeptical about but at least you can find out why it didn't work for you at least you can find out okay so the reason this didn't work was because the volume was just too much now you know more about your volume you note that down you go to the next program now you look at this program and then check its highlights and its downsides and eventually once you've gone through many programs You can maybe make your own program based on all this that you've seen. And that's what I'm kind of doing. Based on all these things that I've learned in the past years, I know this was too much volume. This was too much connective tissue uh, stress. This was too much that. You can create your own program. So it's never a waste of time to try a new thing and then figuring it out why it isn't good for you or why it is good for you. And that should keep you motivated.
0: How do we go about determining our optimal recoverable volume and know if we're doing enough or doing too much.
1: So for, for, uh, traditional strength training, it's, it's, it's a lot easier because you can just follow your doms. You can see, um, uh, you can see if you're, um, not able to progressive overload anymore. You're starting to like stagnate. You're like, ah, oh, I'm not actually able to add stuff. I'm getting tired. You know, I'm, I'm, I, I, uh, I, I'm less motivated. These are all signs, uh, that you are overtraining, right? And, uh, just by noting that down for yourself a few times, you're able to find out what is enough and what keeps you going for a longest time. And it, there's no, program out there no amount of volume that will keep you from deloading you have to deal every now and then you just have to find out what's a <clears throat> healthy amount of weeks until you have to deload which depends like for strength cycles it can be like four or five weeks and then you have to deload for uh, mass cycles it can be up to 12 weeks even um which is which is by the way extreme 12 weeks so most people are around six to eight weeks um but it's important to know the differences so knowing how what a normal deload is knowing when you're fatigued combine those two and you should know how much volume you need but then there comes the hard aspect of of calisthenics where we don't have enough uh, data on to actually find a good way of what is enough it's connective tissue because um, it's a make it or break it thing you don't feel like these athletes that do uh, multis and then they tear their biceps off most of them don't didn't feel anything they didn't feel fatigued they didn't feel like their bicep was tired. They didn't feel pain around the tendons because there's not a lot of pain sensors there. So, it just happens. And, it's really hard to track how, what's happening here. It's really hard to track. So, what you can do is go about it the mathematically way, which is always slowly increase, be very conservative, but that's boring. So, you want to kind of push a bit further. And, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is for that. I don't know where, where, um, how much, how much volume your body can handle. I just don't know. Uh, I, I know for myself a gut feeling because so far I, that hasn't happened to me. But I don't know where my... Maybe I'm under-training. I don't know. Because I see these athletes like Victor Kaminov doing 40 full planches in one day. I'm nowhere close to that. And I'm thinking to myself at the same time, like maybe I'm doing too little. Maybe I'm not doing enough specific work. But at the same time, I'm scared. I'm really scared. Because the other day, two days ago, I saw a guy tear off his bicep right in front of me that hits you <laughs> like yeah, it's that is
0: that is a big fear for me too just some type of major setback like that potentially career altering injury
1: 100 percent. that's super scary and, and he, he showed me his uh pictures of the operation he had very thick bicep tendons so it wasn't even that he wasn't conditioned enough it's just at some point you get so extremely strong your tendons get so resilient your muscles are so strong that your bones are not able to keep up so you get what it's called an avulsion fracture so you you it just the bones are able to keep up with that and you, you pop it off. And again, there's no there's not a lot of uh, uh, pain sensors around there. So there's no really way of finding out. That part can also get really strong, but it's really slow. It's really, really, really slow. And there's no way of finding out how far you are. Maybe at some point we're able to ultrasound it and then look at all these uh, t- tissues and be able to like, hey, that's very thick or hey, that's thin. I don't know. I don't know where the science is at that, uh, where we're at with that. But right now, there's just no way of telling. So the best way to go about things is the conservative way. And that might suck. You might be under training. I sometimes have the feeling that I am, but I'd rather be under training than tear my freaking bicep because that's the scariest thing in my life. That is
0: so true. I like that from two perspectives. You can find out your amount of recoverable volume by just getting in the trenches, doing it, but then also being proactive with your deloads puts you in a position to actually assess your training log because the people that just train indefinitely, YOLO, as hard as I can, just keep going, grind it out, they eventually just dig themselves a hole and they're not sure if they need to do less, they need to do more, it gets very confusing. Whereas with your approach of more consistent deloads ahead of time, you get that slot of time that you've gone through you can see how you've progressed or haven't progressed and adjust your volume for the next time but also that whole piece about i guess future-proofing yourself against potential injuries mitigating injury risk that is that is absolutely key with that deload time off and all the other factors you come back you're fired up you're clear on what you want to do you're not dragging your feet which can happen even for the most passionate people how do people go about coaching themselves? Because most of us are doing this training solo, we're researching. I guess the hard part is being firm, but fair. How do we do that?
1: That's really difficult. I've, I've um, basically self coached myself uh, throughout the entire process. Every now and then I would have like someone teaching me a few things and then I would grab that and put it in my own program. But I would always be in charge of the actual program. I would be the end responsible for what I'm doing. Um, Whereas when you have a coach, which is someone who is super, super like subjective, not in there with the trenches, but you, they they can just look uh, objective. Uh, They can look at you and they can say like, hey, um, on paper, you're just doing too much. So we need to skip that. And you're not emotionally attached to that. That's a huge part. Being not emotionally attached, even after 10 plus years, is still very hard for me. It's, it's, you can be the smartest motherfucker out there, but it's, it's, you're still a human, you're still an athlete, you're still a very emotional being, and you're super vulnerable in that position. I make stupid decisions all the time, and I'm trying my darnest not to do so, but it's so, so hard. And I'm just here to say that that's probably not going to change much. You're going to get better at it but it's going to be really hard there's you're going to be weak at some times like and i mean weak not like mentally weak because the other time the other day i was doing 75 kilo um uh pull-ups which is sick but it felt a little bit too easy so i did an 80 and i didn't get injured this time but i could have gotten injured like i didn't plan for that i didn't that, that wasn't in my program that was a five kilo step that's stupid that's not smart. I know yeah. that. I know that. As I was loading that up, I was like, "This is stupid. This doesn't make sense." But yo, if I get it though, yeah. so I got it. I got the rep. I felt amazing. I could say I'm primed, but at what cost? I could have injured yeah. myself. And I don't know. I I just it's just really hard to tell yourself not to do something like that.
0: Yeah, the advice that I often give myself is just you want to try and treat yourself how you treat other people, because often we just. Turn the gorilla mind on, as you said. I'm. I do that as well. I just get too ged up with this whole stuff, even after ten plus years. But it's just okay. If I was coaching another athlete, I'd just say, okay, based on what we're seeing here, it's uh, some restraints probably going to be a good thing, and just living to fight another day with that personal best. If it's not on the cards, is a bad yeah. thing. And I think with time, you have more success with that perspective then you don't as in earlier days but yeah i think people shouldn't beat themselves up if they yeah slip up every now and then as long as if it's not it's something completely reckless
1: i i mean I, I used to be a lot worse man i used to do a crazier stuff like i would go way off my program in the beginning now i i'm now I, it's maybe it's it's growth that i already realized like how that was stupid Whereas in the past, I wouldn't even care about that, probably. So you're right. I, d- I did actually become better at it. But still, that was a risk. <laughs> like, be, like I got to make sure that I know that.
0: Yeah. What would you say are the most common reasons that people get injured in this world of calisthenics?
1: So I, I don't have, like, data to say, but based on my personal experience, I think is the acute change in workload is one of the biggest uh, uh, reasons where people learn a new skill and then they spam the hell out of that skill. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm guilty of that. I got the full planche, and a week after I lost the full planche. Why? Because I was full planching all the time. And I think a lot of people do that. It's this sudden change of volume in your training, this sudden increase, not respecting the movement, not respecting how much impact it has on your body, because you're not able to feel that. You're not able to feel connective tissue until it happens. Um, and I think that's single-handedly the biggest reason people acutely changing volume whereas what you should do and this is shown in every sports science literature is chronic workload changes if you look at any other sport like football or you look at basketball when they go from off season to on season that's when the injuries the most injuries happen the bulk injuries happen then why because suddenly you're going from very low volume to very high volume and that's something you always need to be aware of and, and most people get injured after like two week holiday and they come back to the gym injured because they try to lift the same weights. They try to lift the same amount of weights in the sense of a uh, volume. And, uh, you can't, you need to respect that you ha- took two weeks off. These muscles also went on a break to start over, go back like 10% and then go back until you're back to hundred percent and then start progressively overloading.
0: That's great. Yeah. That's what we say across the board with the research. Um, that's what I was taught with physio as well. It's just, yeah. yeah, you can't just make sudden jumps. And especially depressingly as you get older, that becomes even more true. Like we yeah. see so many, the, the classic example is someone that's in their, their 30s, they used to play sport, they suddenly decide oh, yeah. to pick up some soccer or something like that, boom, Achilles goes. It's just <laughs> things that's like painful. that. Whereas if they stepped up their workload, maybe played, you know, half a game instead of a full game, the speed was a bit less. They did some prep on the tissues around their calf. That'd probably be okay.
1: And it's good. You mentioned that, that um, a calisthenics athlete that's really strong should watch out doing other sports because, <clears throat> again, you're super strong, right? So I have this friend who was doing uh, arm wrestling for the first time. It was just, he was he was uh, challenged by these other guys, like, yo, you're huge, so let's do an arm wrestle thing. I always say no, because I know that's a huge risk. I am not conditioned to do so, but I am freaking strong. And what happened to this guy is he he, he blew his shoulder. It's completely like his shoulder. He was out of the game for two years, just by one session, And it's really easy to say that in hindsight because a lot of people can do that without any injuries, but just be aware you are so strong and doing movements that is outside of your scope is always a high risk. It's always a high risk. So don't just jump in a new sport and max out. I see so many elite athletes do that. Like I I, I, I train with sometimes with the Dutch uh, gymnastics team and then I see them do challenges that other people say. And I'm like, don't do that. You're risking everything. You don't bench press. Don't just now put 120 on that. Don't that's do that. A, you, yeah. You're gonna blow up everything. I know you're strong enough to do that, but your joints aren't. They're not used to this.
0: Yeah, that's that law of specificity. And I've seen it time and time again. You see someone who's got a tremendous amount of muscle and they're really skilled at their activity. Say it's calisthenics. Jumping into something different, like weights, it it doesn't translate one for one. I see it so often. It's fascinating seeing experts try something that they haven't done before because regardless of who you are, the new activity is foreign and it humbles you. I've seen, like, world-class hand balancers try and do, like, bent arm pushing and they can't do, you know, basic handstand push-ups and it just – The same thing applies across all domains. So don't feel too bad if you see someone who's really good at something. Just take confidence in the fact that they're not good at everything and they're human like the rest of us. What's something that you've changed your mind about recently with regard to calisthenics?
1: Well, that's what I mentioned later. Like in the past few years. I started thinking more about... So at first, I was really thinking I have to become bigger. I'm not big enough. I'm not big enough. I'm not big enough. I need more muscles. And now I've really changed my mind. I'm like, no, I, I don't need to get become that big. I've, I've, I've seen all these elite gymnasts and elite athletes. They have a pretty similar build to me. And I don't need to become much bigger. If anything, I might need to lose some weight. And it sounds very counterintuitive to what I was thinking beforehand because, you know... More muscle means greater cross-sectional muscle area, um, uh, greater cross-sectional muscle surface area. But I, I changed my mind about that completely. I did 180, and I'm like, I think I already reached enough muscle, for now at least, to to do all these movements. And what I as an athlete need to focus on, and I think a lot of athletes need to be focusing on, is that key point that I've mentioned multiple times in this uh, podcast is getting to a point where I'm able to do very specific work. And so what I'm doing now is I'm rehabbing obviously, uh, from my shoulder. So I'm, I'm slowly introducing push movements again and getting exposure. But the moment I'm able to fully train normally again, I'm going to make even my system work specific to the end goals. I'm going to become hyper-specific because that's what I need now. And I think a lot of athletes, uh, are, At the point that they need that so i'm going to if i'm going to do assistant work for planche i'm going to be doing planche push-ups with near lockout Uh, when i'm doing front lever assistance i'm going to do full front lever rows but i'm going to make sure well front levers don't really have much there's not a big bottleneck like in in planche so i could actually do just full range of motion i could just i could just rep those out um, if I'm going to do uh, pull ups, I can either choose weighted pull ups or one on pull ups, depending on what my goals are. And I'm just going to work on very specific movements. Like, I'm going to replace my overhead press with uh, handsome push ups. I'm just going to do full on handsome push ups, get an easy 20 30 so that that becomes my chill mode. My handsome push ups need to be chill. That needs to be my base level training so that I can do weighted handsome push ups. And I am now a strong contender of specific work even in your assistant workouts that's just try to get as specific as possible without taxing the things you need for the specific work uh, for the actual specific technique work and that's something that I've really changed my mind on which I always believed in but I didn't emphasize that enough I don't I don't think I realize how important it is because I could do crazy dips like at my body weight, 62 kilo. I could do like 95 kilos in the morning at 5 a.m., three reps, etc. But there was really no point to get further than that. There was really no point to get stronger than that. I could have spent that time better at doing planche push ups, etc. Because that is my end goal. My end goal is getting insane planche push ups, not insane dips. I don't really care. I could have gotten injured. That's why I stopped, by the way, because it just felt super super weird and and and, unsta- and not stable to do something like that. So that's what I changed my mind on. Uh, I want to be more specific on everything.
0: Perfect, mate. Tons of gems in this podcast. It was an absolute pleasure chatting to you. Where can people find out more about your work if they want to follow you?
1: Well, thanks. And um, they can find me on my Instagram, Dr. Yacht. And on my YouTube channel, I'm uh, finally picking up my YouTube channel again. Uh, I hope to uh, make many tutorials, hopefully podcasts, uh, because I feel like uh, I I I really wanna but t- teach people what I have learned for free, and I I have a strong will in me to do that. I really want to help because I feel like there's still not enough resources out there. You're doing great stuff, but you're but there's not many of you. We need more of you. So I feel like. Uh, I can really contribute to that. So my YouTube channel and my Instagram, both That's right.
0: You heard it here first. We've got to keep you accountable. We need you out there, my calisthenics colleague. It'd be a shame for you not to get the message out there, get the passion. So check him out, follow him and uh, take care everyone. See ya. Ciao. Thanks everyone for listening. Visit fitnessfaqs.com to master calisthenics and become a bodyweight pro.